Want to know why uranium prices have suddenly shot up by over 60%? Well, we sit down with a man whose fund just moved the market by buying 10 million pounds of it in the past few weeks. The investor community is saying, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of good things happening for nuclear. It's getting a lot of policy support uh, by the Biden administration, the EU, and most of the countries in the EU are very supportive of nuclear. Yet there's been so much supply destruction, uh, destruction over the last few years that there's now a structural deficit. And the only way to fix that deficit is to, to reset the market using a new incentive price to bring it back online. And that's, that's the key thesis here that most investors are latched on to. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. Suddenly, uranium is in the spotlight. Its prices jumped by two thirds in the past month. When I asked on this program last week if you viewers had any interest in hearing an update from an expert on the uranium market, you answered with a resounding yes. Well, your wish is our command. I am very grateful that John Champaglia is joining us on the program today. John is CEO of Sprott Asset Management. His firm focuses on providing the retail market with opportunities to invest in real assets, and it's been in the news of late with the launch of its new Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, which many attribute to the recent price spike in uranium. John, it's wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Nice to connect again. Uh, all right. Well, John, look, I want to talk to you about uranium, like I just said. But beforehand, I just want to ask you the question I ask all of our guests before we get started, which is what is your general assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? What is my general view of today's economy? Well, I find uh, they're very hard to figure out. <laughs> Um, you've got a lot of markets that are being, I think, underpinned by a lot of cheap money. And that has led to a lot of uh, asset inflation with just about everything, which has now trickled through to inflation. And I think that's a very interesting dynamic that investors have not had to deal with for many, many years. So we see a very Fed-driven, cheap money, easy money uh, policy framework really driving valuations of just about every asset class in the world. So I think that makes it very challenging for investors to figure out because everything is trading so high right now. At the same time, you've got inflation that is pushing the price of just about everything up as uh, supply chains around the world have been very, very disrupted. All right. And uh, so in a cheap money world, um, uh, people worry about the future purchasing power of that money. And as I said in the introduction, Sprott really focuses on hard assets. And oftentimes, hard asset investors uh, are looking to put capital in their hard assets because they are assets that can't be inflated away and, and should provide a good hedge against currency devaluation. I see you nodding here as I'm saying this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we've, we've, seen, uh, we've seen tremendous interest in the last year and a half in both physical gold and silver. And I think that's exactly why it's people are looking for hard assets that cannot be deflated away. Um, yes, I think the initial move into gold was really as a safe haven and uh, a safe haven investment that we saw uh, back in the early part of 2020 when COVID was unfolding. But I think more recently with silver, you know, joining uh, the the joining the gains um, later in the in the year. 
But I think people are thinking of them not just as a way to protect wealth and, and equity risk, and but they're also looking at these at these assets as a way to protect their portfolios from uh, the, the erosion of purchasing power, which we're seeing right now with uh, inflation at both the consumer and the producer level. All right. Well, look, and speaking of price inflation in many assets, as you, you just referenced, um, mm -hmm. one asset that really hadn't seen much price inflation at all, much price mm -hmm. movement at all for years was uranium. Uh, now, suddenly that sector is on fire. And as I said in the introduction, Sprott may actually be playing kind of a direct role in that. Um, so I do want to talk about that with you. But before we talk about uranium specifically, let's just take a few minutes, if we can, and talk about this current state of nuclear energy, because I think that's a topic uh, that many people, including myself, really haven't been tracking all that closely over the past recent years. Um, you know, the big focus has been on renewables and alternatives and trying to get off mm -hmm. fossil fuels. Um, from my layman's understanding, I, I know that uh, you know nuclear has sort of fallen out of fashion, and certainly, uh, you know, uh, tragedies like uh, Fukushima and before that Chernobyl and Three Mile Island haven't helped the case. So, can you just start us off here with giving us a quick update as to uh, what is the current status of nuclear energy in the global uh, nuclear power in the global mm -hmm. energy mix, and you know, is it is it growing or is it shrinking right now? Sure, that's a great question. I mean, nuclear energy, I would say to start off, is highly polarizing for many people. Um, people have this vision, you know, visions of past disasters that you mentioned, and that's obviously inf influenced greatly their perception around the safety of nuclear energy. If you take a step back and you look at the safety of nuclear energy relative to all other forms of energy production, so those would be oil and gas, coal, natural gas, um, um, uh, well, I guess fossil fuels predominantly. If you look at the safety track record of, of nuclear versus fossil fuels, what you'll find is that nuclear is actually much, much safer, even with those disasters. So I think that's the first thing. The safety track record at the nuclear facilities after Fukushima and Chernobyl it has improved dramatically. And I think you're starting to see a change in perception. And the reason for that is a, a fewfold. One, there's a growing realization that nuclear provides the cleanest form of energy in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And if you think about all of these very aggressive decarbonization goals that governments are setting around the world uh, for 2050 and 2060, they are now acknowledging that they cannot meet those goals without having nuclear part of the low greenhouse gas emission energy mix. So yes, Things like solar and wind will always get favorable treatment, whether that's financial incentives or regulatory. But I think in the US, for example, there is a very different bipartisan shift going on. I'll take the recent example in the state of Illinois, where legislation was just passed to support a couple of nuclear power plants there to extend their lives that were, that were on the bubble of, of potentially closing. So in a world where everyone is looking for more energy and more reliable baseload energy, nuclear fits that bill. It's low carbon and it's very, very reliable. Nuclear runs on average 92.5% of the time. So it's that reliable baseload power that people are attracted to. All right. Um, okay. So you know, basically it's, um, uh, it, it is a relatively safe energy that you mentioned. Uh, 
admittedly, when things go wrong, they can go really, really wrong. Um, but 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 in, over the long course of the decades of, of nuclear uh, power, you're saying the, the, the real issues have been few and, and far between. Um, it's the cleanest form of energy in terms of emissions, and it's highly reliable, has a 92.8% uptime, you said. And of course, you contrast that versus alternatives like mm -hmm. wind and solar, you know, they have a lot of intermittency issues and challenges. Okay, exactly. so those are all the... Those are the pros yep, yep. going forward. Um, just curious, I do not know the answer to this question. Are there new technologies out there that are either improving the efficiency uh, or safety um, uh, game at all for nuclear? Like, can, can we expect nuclear to um, Im improve as a, as, a, as a power source going forward because sure. of innovation? Yeah, I think that the uh, the part of nuclear that most people are excited about are small modular reactors, also known uh, as SMRs. And what that really allows you to do is instead of building these huge megawatt plants, to build smaller uh, power plants that could that could uh, be in different locations, uh, perhaps be in a location in a small a smaller uh, urban setting. And I think there's a lot of money and technology being put against this idea of this next generation of smaller uh, modular reactors. So I think that's that's where the market is trying to get to. All right, and presumably that makes, um, I guess you can say those are more efficient, um, but they're, they're, they're smaller so that they're cheaper and more scalable, I would imagine, correct? Yeah, I think they're just, um, one of the big uh, knocks against nuclear is that the timeline to build one of these plants and the cost is enormous. So obviously they need to be uh, close by to huge urban centers. If you think about a small modular reactor, it could facilitate the needs of say a smaller city um, and could be put in different locations. So shorter time to build, less expensive and, and uh, more versatile, I guess, is, is is why people are interested in this technology. Okay, and I would imagine too, maybe less ecological impact. You know, I know there's really big plants, you know, require massive amounts of water and whatnot to keep them cooled. Maybe smaller plants require less. I see you nodding here. Yeah. All right, last question on the high level about nuclear. Uh, any progress made on sort of dealing with the safety issue of the, the, the nuclear waste that's left over? Yeah, sure. Well, it is an ongoing issue. I mean, just like with anything related to mining uh, or any extractive industry, when you when take something out of the earth, there is an obligation to deal with with what's left. So in mining, you need to reclaim the site and, uh, you know, plant plant the vegetation back and whatnot. It's it's not too dissimilar to uh, all other kinds of, of, of spent fuel. So if you think about uh, spent nuclear waste, uh, it needs to be safely stored, and there's many ways to do that. If you think about solar, there is an end of life for those panels. Where do those panels go? Well, it's not easy to, to recycle them, um, and they are full of different elements that, that some of them can be uh, toxic. So um, there, every form of energy has, has its issues in terms of what do, you, what do you do with the end of life, whether it's uh, landfill or putting, the, putting nuclear waste in, in a safe storage facility. All right, so um, sounds like you know still a very big uh, need to figure out ways to to deal effectively with with the waste, but it's not unique to this industry, is what you're saying. There's lots of other types of extractive industries that still have to deal with similar toxic issues. Okay, so first off, thank you for helping bring us up to speed with what's going on at a high level with nuclear energy. Now let's get to uranium itself. Um, couple couple 
you know, basic questions first. Um, can you just describe what is it exactly? You know, what, what, sure. what makes it what makes it valuable to the nuclear process? Um, what type of form do we do we mine it in? Um, and if you can also, in your answer, answer the question, what is yellow cake? Because we hear that description sure. a lot when we talk about uranium. Right, right. Yeah, sure. So yeah, uh, uranium is basically an incredibly dense material. And uh, that and that density provides unique attributes to it. And it's basically mined uh, from the ground in a number of different techniques around the world. Uh, but what's interesting about uranium is um, it's found in abundance in only a few parts of the world. So Canada um, has a lot of uranium, Kazakh, uh, um, Kazakhstan has a lot of uranium, Australia and parts of Africa. So it's, it's, um, it's plentiful, but it's very concentrated in a number of, of different areas. Um, it is uh, pulled out of the ground and, and processed into something that ultimately is named yellow cake or U308 is a technical term or uranium oxide. And they call it yellow cake because if you look at it, it's, it essentially looks like a yellowish kind of yellow to brownish powder. It's stored in drums. And just to give you some perspective of how dense uranium is in U308 state, if you, if you think about an oil drum, if you filled it halfway with U308 powder, that drum would weigh a thousand pounds. So it That's has, stuff. it is incredibly dense. Um, that that uh, U308 goes through a very complex set of processes to convert it and enrich it to what ultimately becomes a fuel pellet. And that fuel pellet goes into, into a reactor and that creates the, the process which releases heat and ultimately boils water and creates steam and turns a turbine. Um, so one little uh, pellet, uh, which looks like could be the size of say a gummy bear, has incredible energy density. And I'll just give you a sense of what that, the amount of energy in a little gummy is the equivalent of three barrels of oil, one ton of coal and 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas. So the energy and sorry, density- Sorry, just how big is a pellet? Smaller a than pellet, marble? A pellet would be uh, approximately, and I'm metric, <laughs> about one centimeter. So half an inch by about uh, a half an inch. All right, so that's so, the size so of a little pellet. Almost like a pencil eraser. Yes. Yeah. Right. Little. Yeah. About the end of the the, the, the metal tip and the eraser. So that's the uh, gives you a sense of how much energy can be released uh, in that in that fission nuclear fission process within a reactor. And that's and that's the that's the amazing thing about uranium. Um, it has it can release an incredible amount of energy, which is then used to boil water, to produce steam, to turn a turbine, and make electricity. All right, great, thank you. You are bringing us all back to our early high school uh, chemistry classes, but uh, but it's a very helpful uh, primer. Um, all right, and and you also did a good job of explaining its role in nuclear production. Its job is basically to get really hot to convert water to steam to then turn uh, turbines. I mean, I guess because it is uh, you know steam power, uh, as you said, the emissions are basically non-existent. Exactly. There's no greenhouse gases that come out of the process. Um, all right, so let's get to this then. So it's, it's um, uh, you know, small amount of material, high energy yield, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the basic value proposition uh, to the nuclear scientist for using uranium. Um, how about to the investor? Um, right. You know, now, you're, you know, 
people are beginning to get interested in, in, in investing in uranium again. Mm -hmm. What is the value proposition to today's investor where, you know, somebody would say you want to own uranium today because? Sure. So uranium um, went through a horrible bear market, the, the entire sector, not just the physical, but also all of the related mining companies and, uh, and developers. And this really happened uh, after the, the Fukushima disaster in 2011, where, as we, we may remember, there was an earthquake caused a tsunami and, and damaged the plant. Um, the, at that time in 2011, the price of uranium was in the 70s per pound, $70, 70 to $75 a pound. It subsequently went into a free fall because there was so much excess inventory after that. There was also a big push and scare by certain countries like Germany who said, hey, this stuff is dangerous. We're gonna get rid of all these power plants. What I find interesting about that is since they made those announcements and started to close their plants, their greenhouse gas emissions have gone up and their cost of electricity has skyrocketed um, as a side note. But going back to the price of uranium, it really went into a free fall because there was a massive overhang uh, of material available as all the Japanese reactors were, were, were shut down. So fast forward and you're a, a uranium producer, you can't sell the uranium at a price that even covers your costs of pulling it out of the ground. So essentially what happened is a, a number of mines closed or miners cut back production. That supply discipline by idling capacity took many years to kind of clear the overhang. And finally, we've turned the corner where the price of uranium after falling from you know, 75 down to say 20 bucks, started to recover to $30 this past summer. And in the past couple of months, you've seen the price escalate up to around $50 a pound in the spot market. So the marketplace has finally worked through this supply overhang. It's finally catching, I would say, uh, a tailwind versus a, hail, a, a headwind related to the narrative around nuclear's role in the, in the uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction strategy. You're also seeing a lot of investors say, hey, this fits within my ESG investing parameters. They're viewing nuclear as a, as a counter to say some of the uh, legacy fossil fuels. So there's a bunch of things finally happening that are positive for, for uranium. And that's really lit the, the, the market on fire. And you know, uranium is not a big market. The reason is not a big market because so much capacity has been taken out of the system during the bear market. And if you if you look at Cameco and Kazatomprom, which are the two largest producers in the world, they have lots of capacity that is shut in right now. And they won't bring that capacity back online until they see an incentive price that gives them the confidence to resume production at, at those shut-in facilities. So the investor community is saying, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of good things happening for nuclear. It's getting a lot of policy support uh, by the Biden administration, the EU, and most of the countries in the EU are very supportive of nuclear, yet there's been so much supply destruction, uh, destruction over the last few years that there's now a structural deficit. And the only way to fix that deficit is to, to reset the market using a new incentive price to bring it back online. And that's, that's the key thesis here that most investors are latched on to. Okay. Um, very, very cogent and concise uh, description of, of, of the value proposition here to the investor. 
Now, um, I assume that was a big part of the rationale behind creating these, uh, I believe this is new, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Um, I see you nodding there. I'll, I'll let you comment on any other sure. reasons why you might've might have done that. Um, well, so you guys have bought a lot of uranium recently. So from what I've been able to tell, looks like over the you know, recent couple months, uh, you guys have bought about 10 million pounds of uranium. And I think that brings the total holding of the trust up to somewhere close to 30 million pounds. Um, uh, the price has moved in that process and maybe potentially because you guys have been buying so much of it. So uh, I guess first, uh, anything you want to say about you know, the mission behind why you created the trust? And then to your point about um, the investment uh philosophy here is sort of the, the investment opportunity is, is uranium is going to need to be repriced to bring all this shutdown capacity back online. Well, the price has just jumped by 60% or so. Has that repricing taken effect or are we just in the early innings of this? Sure. Let me, let me go back a step and I'll give um, your audience a little bit of uh, background. So the, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust uh, commenced trading uh, on July 19th of this year. And that trust was formed out of uh, a reorganization of uh, Uranium Participation Corp. And that company existed way back in 2005. So from 2005 to mid 2021, that company acquired approximately 16 million, no, I'm excuse, sorry, 18 million pounds of physical uranium. And you're right, in the last four weeks, we've bought 10 million pounds, just to give you a sense of how much investor interest there's been in this category. So it's been, it's been uh, completely beyond our expectations in terms of, uh, of the marketplace reaction. And we've had a long-term view on uranium price going higher. We worked on this initiative for over two years. So this isn't something that we just uh, decided to whip up in the summer because uh, things were starting to move. It was a long-term project. And we have a long-term constructive view on that on the price of uranium. We don't have a set price target, but if that supply deficit issue is going to be fixed, that price, the price of uranium clearly has to go even higher than where we are today. At $50 a pound, where we are right now in the spot market, that's still not enough to incent producers to turn their minds back on. And one of the things about mining is, even if you've got the mine and it's on care and maintenance, it could take you two years to turn it back on to full capacity again. You think about the people you have to hire, training, equipment, um, it has a big lead time. And I think the producers have been so disciplined with their supply management that they're not gonna rush to turn these mines back on until they see the price stabilize um, at these higher levels. And also they need to contract with utilities to ensure that there's a future home for those pounds. And I think that's the other side of the story that investors are interested in, is that they believe many utilities over the next two to three years are going to enter into a new contracting cycle to secure long-term supply. Right now, there's two uh, utilities, one in the US and one in Asia, that are asking for proposals from uranium producers to supply them with material over many years. We're all kind of waiting to see what kind of deals get done there because it will send a signal to the market around utilities appetite to pay higher prices than they historically have paid for uranium. So the market is, is looking to see 
uh, very carefully just uh, at how these utilities are, are, are going to be buying material given the recent run up in the spot price. All right, really fascinating. So it sounds like the dynamics of the industry are that nuclear power tends to get purchased out in multi-year contracts and it makes a ton of sense here that uh, the miners want to see if those contracts are going to be more generous going forward than they've been in the past decade or so where you said the, the industry really was was experiencing um, a contraction or at least you know much lower demand uh, than it was hoping for. So when when do you kind of have a sense ballpark when we might know uh, whether you know if these contracts are going to get done and if so what the duration they're going to be? Is it something that we would expect to see in months, in a year, multiple years? Yeah, I think it's going to unfold slowly over the over the coming twelve months. These um, first two contracts that are out in the marketplace, um, are, I think, are the first tests for the market to look at. And uh, I guess we'll know in the next few months where those where those pricing levels get set. Um, but I, I would say that it's going to take at least a couple of years to 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 watch this unfold as utilities come back and reload. You know, running a power plant is, is not like running uh, some other business. You need to have security of supply of material purchased years in advance, as you mentioned. And as they run down their inventories, they come back to the market and they procure material, sometimes for out to 10 years in, in term. So that'll be the real test, because at the end of the day, the largest consumer of, of, of uranium are the utilities. It's, it's not financial investors. It's not speculators. It's the end user. It has to go to those power plants. Okay. Um, so let me just sort of recap here real briefly. So as a potential investor, I'm interested in this space because um, there was a glut of uranium uh, that you described earlier, right? Left over after right. the whole Fukushima uh, disaster. That glut you're basically saying has now been sort of passed through the system. And so now there's, there's you know, higher demand uh, for uranium. Um, but many of the miners have sort of shut down their mining operations in the interim, right? So that by itself is putting upward pressure on the demand for uranium. But we may have some of these big utility contracts uh, get struck where there's going to be greater demand from the utilities going forward than there have been in the past decade or two. And that's going to place uh, additional upward pricing pressure, uh, or at least upward demand for uranium. And, uh, and, and hopefully that will then give the miners confidence that there's going to be a market there and they're going to reopen uh, mines that have been shut down right now, right? Which Yeah, which... I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great recap of, of what the most market participants believe will, needs to happen for the market to rebalance itself over the next few years. Right. Okay. And and uh, not necessarily. I'm going to ask you. You can you can decline. Um, but you've said, look, the, the recent jump from 30 to 50, you don't think reflects um, where the price is going to need to get to to get those miners uh, incented enough to to reopen mines. Is there a price at which you think the miners, you know, once they have confidence that 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 mm -hmm. uh, that price would be achieved, uh, it would it would be worth it for them? So, what what price territory are we talking about? Is it sure. well? I think um, every every project and every mining company has a, a, their own kind of cost curve that they're trying to think think about. Um, if you look at a lot of the research reports, uh, they they suggest the price of uranium needs to kind of hold in. And, and become more firm at anywhere between 60 and $70 a pound. But um, 
you know, other people have much more rosier expectations of, of where the price could go. I mean, if you go back to 2007, the price of uranium, believe it or not, hit $140 a pound. So it was a pretty long, you know, trip down from $140 a pound to 20, and now we're back to 50. So if you look at the very long-term chart, um, it looks like a small little blip in terms of what we've experienced the last couple of months because, you know, the, the, the price was just so much higher back in the mid 2000s. Okay, so we have historical precedent that it, it was basically three times higher than where it is right now. And of course, where it is right now is 60% higher than where it was a month ago. Um, so lo lots of potential um, for the price to, 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 to move a lot higher over time. Um, so real quickly, regarding the, the most recent price movement, um, it's certainly highly correlated with the purchases that you guys have been making in the marketplace. I guess one question is, is um, do you expect that, do you expect it to stick here at the $50 or is this a little bit of a, a pig through the Python where you guys were just buying a lot of product that was out there in the markets and things might equilibrate in the near term before they, they march up to more sustainably higher prices in the future? Sure. Well, I, I think we, we, what we experienced uh, with the trust was uh, a lot of pent up demand. When we made the announcement that we were going to reorganize Uranium Participation Corp at the end of April, I mean, we, we spent uh, all summer talking to different investors that were in UPC and prospective investors, and we got a good feeling that there was pent up demand. Um, and we got a lot of good feedback on the, new, on the new vehicle and some of the shareholder enhancements we made. So I think the, 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 the spurt of growth that we've seen uh, was clearly reflecting that pent up demand. And I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if it moderated somewhat. Um, but the trust is really a function of uh, investor demand. So if the investor demand is there in the market, the trust's job is to take the cash that people give us and buy more uranium. The trust, I think, has done a wonderful job in, in something that's been sorely lacking in the uranium market, which is price discovery. Um, and the reason why there hasn't been a lot of price discovery in the spot end of the market is because there hasn't really been an active vehicle playing that role. And I think with the trust's entry into the market, we're seeing a much more robust spot market evolve. And at the end of the day, you need to, you need to pay someone a price to incent them to give you what they have. So as the price has gone up, we've seen more and more sellers that are willing to, to sell their material because everybody has a reason to, to, to trade their, their pounds. And um, we're seeing a lot of interest right around the world right now from investors. So it's hard to know exactly what the demand will be and how much more buying we will do, but it's not an active, it's not a trading vehicle. We don't do any market timing. We raise capital on an accretive basis and we put the money to work in, into, into more U308. It's a very simple model. All right. Um, well, look, two uh, somewhat tangential questions here for you. Um, one is in, in you know, reading up for this interview, there are, you know, there were some articles out there speculating that, you know, Sprott's trying to corner the uranium market. Um, I just want to give you a chance to, to respond to, to those, uh, you know, theories. Yeah, well, I think the marketplace got uh, completely surprised by how active the trust was right out of the gate. And, and as, we, as we were as well, to be totally candid with you, um, we filed our original shelf prospectus for $300 million dollars um, in, in new unit issuance. And we, you know, we blew through that in just a few weeks and had to upsize the, the shelf. So 
Um, I, I think the marketplace is served well by having greater liquidity, greater price discovery and formation, and more market participants. If you look at all of the commodity markets, um, they are they are they function better than the uranium market. I would say historically because they're they're bigger, they're more liquid. There's more participants, and there's been not just end users involved, but there's been speculators and financial intermediaries helping to make those markets. So I think the trust can act as a catalyst to help the uranium market evolve. And I think a lot of participants we've talked to have been clamoring for years to make the uranium market more liquid and more transparent. And I think that's what the trust is helping to do. Okay. Well, I mean, just in theory, that makes total sense. Uh, you've sort of taken a sleepy market and then brought an active participant into it. And you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, more participation, um, more transactions, more competition. Um, it just all those help get to truer price discovery, which is something that I think uh, you know most investors are. Uh, it's good for everybody, but I think I think investors are frustrated in a lot of markets that that price discovery um, doesn't seem to be getting set by natural market forces very much. And, and you know, there, there are some larger markets that, that have a lot of intervention in them and whatnot. But anyway, you guys are, are, are really kind of trying to grab the torch uh, of, hey, let's get truer price discovery in the uranium market. And I think that's, that's only a good thing. Now, here's my other weird question, um, just sort of on this topic of, uh, uh, smaller markets and the the impact that that few players can have. Um, I'm not recommending this, but this is just something I've always noodled on. And because you're an expert in precious metals too, uh, I'd love to get your opinion. Um, you know, we, we everybody remembers what happened to the Hunt brothers um, back in the silver market decades ago. But you know, there's lots of claims that uh, the silver market uh, isn't being allowed to um, experience true price discovery because of intervention or not, and that may or may not be true. Um, but it's such a tiny market that when you look at the um, size of, of above ground silver in the world in terms of ounces, like mm -hmm. there are, you know, some of the poorer billionaires could pull together and buy all that supply or, you know, a company or two out there, some of the bigger companies out there with these massive balance sheets, mm -hmm. they could basically snap up all silver supply. Like, why are people not taking advantage of that opportunity um, if indeed they do believe the asset is, is underpriced. Yeah, I mean, we, we think that we, we think silver is totally underpriced. I mean, I am blown away uh, at how low the price is right now. I, if you look at the valuations of just about everything in the world right now, um, how many things can you find that are 50% below their last cycle high? That's silver. I mean, silver was just under 50 in 2010, and we're, we're now in the you know, half that level. Same with uranium. Uranium, as I said, it was it was well off. It's 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 uh, not all time highs, but just it's more recent highs in 2011. So um, I am completely dumbfounded at, at why silver is as low as it is. I mean, in our Sprott Physical Silver Trust, um, we acquired something like 90 million ounces of silver in the past 12 months, or uh, maybe a little longer than 12 months now. But we've been huge buyers of physical silver and um you know we've done our part uh, you know as investors have given us their capital um we've sourced an enormous amount of silver i can tell you firsthand that trying to find that silver to buy in in the 100 uh 1000 ounce uh, london good delivery form 
is an enormous amount of work. It's an enormous amount of work shipping that stuff to our vaults. And it, it kept us incredibly busy um, earlier in the year. Um, so we've acquired a lot of silver and the price is, has basically gone down over most of that time period. So it's incredibly frustrating. And it's, it's really hard to explain why it is down at these levels given how much investor buying we've seen in the last 18 months in the category. So uh, I am equally as frustrated as a lot of other uh, investors that we have in our, in our fund. All right. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that you're perplexed because again, I just I think God, you know, given that if that is indeed the the case, and I trust you to understand the market way better than me, you know, why does not a Elon Musk or an Apple just step in and and be another big buyer, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, drive the market to closer to where the two to true price of the the metal should be because just a single player that large stepping in from what I'm hearing you say about how hard it is to, to source the product itself, you know, I think would just, would, would just empty the market of supply almost overnight. Yeah. I mean, obviously, um, you know, there was obviously a big push early in the year to, to buy as much physical as possible in all forms. And that obviously led to shortages across many forms of silver. And as, as I said, I mean, you know, I saw firsthand, uh, our trader buying 90 million ounces of the stuff um, with a lot of difficulty. So it's 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 very difficult to understand why the price isn't substantially higher. Why other participants don't come into the market? Um, I don't know. I, I find that most institutions and influencers like that, they don't give a lot of respect or don't have a lot of interest in precious metals, period. I just don't think they get it. I just don't think they understand the role they play. And I think in a, an environment where assets of, of all kinds keep hitting record levels, that people just have become disinterested um, in precious metals of late in terms of some of these generalist investors. Yeah, that may be true. And look, I don't want to I don't want to hijack this wonderful uranium discussion uh, back to the precious metals, but I think what we're talking about is uh, a very common part of the value proposition of owning uh, hard assets in general, which is that these are finite markets and many of them really aren't very large. And when you get to an inflection point where enough of the bigger players wake up to the, the value prop and want to start entering the market, you can see price changes, uh, dramatic price cha changes happen in very compressed periods of time. And I, I think we've just seen that in uranium as you guys stepped in as a buyer there. Um, Mike Maloney, who runs goldsilver.com has a great terminology where he says, you know, during those moments, the price of that hard asset can turn into either unaffordium or unobtainium, right? Mm -hmm. and it's like, it gets a lot pricier. And in certain right. cases, you just might not be able to get it at any price phys physically, at least. So, all right, well, look, as, we, as we wrap up here, a um, couple of quick questions for you. Um, one is what thoughts, perspective, opinion, outlook do you have for the uranium miners? I would assume that that's probably pretty bullish, but you, let me know. Yeah, well, the uranium miners have uh, been on a hell of a tear. And, um, and that's on the back of higher pricing. And it's also on the back of expectation that with this higher price, that finally, they'll be able to get financing. Um, a lot of money has gone into uranium mining uh, companies in the last year after a very long drought. So finally being able to access equity capital again, 
um, is, is giving these companies a, a fighting chance to actually develop new projects uh, and actually make profits again uh, for the producers. So the stocks have had a big run. Um, I would say that they're pricing in a much higher uranium price than we are right now. But again, you know, stocks and stock investors are forward looking. They're, they're building in forward expectations around where they see the potential price of uranium going. And they've already kind of priced that into, into a lot of these stocks. So I think you have to be a bit cautious with some of the stocks, but um, there's definitely a lot of excitement in the sector after a very long, uh, dark period, I would say. All right. And uh, you know, Rick Rule, who was associated with your organization for a long time, you know, spent years telling people, uh, look, there's going to come a time where uranium is going to be a wonderful play, but you may have to wait years for it. Uh, has, has that new, much more bullish era just kicked off? Have we just seen the start of that this year? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, Rick Rick is a classic deep value investor. He is, he's one of the most, most patient investors I've ever worked with. Uh, and he's been positioning himself in uranium and uranium miners for a number of years when nobody was interested in them. Um, because of Rick's value style, I think he would tell you now that, that uh, he's probably taken some money off the table because the the early gains have been made and, and uh, that's just his style. But I think that the uranium market is just starting to emerge in the early innings of a new bull market. Given all of the positive uh, demand factors and this uh, lingering uh, supply deficit, um, we think that it has more room to go. All right, uh, great, John. Well, look, uh, finishing up here, um, there are, uh, you know, lots of articles out there about new types of nuclear energy coming in the future. Um, always a lot of headlines out there about people that are working on fusion in some lab somewhere, um, staying in the fission space. You know, I know that there's been interest over the years in um, potentially building thorium-based reactors, which offer promise on both the cost and the safety side of things. Um, just a, curious if you have any thoughts on sort of alternate future um, sources of nuclear power going forward. Um, is any of this stuff hold interest for you guys? Does it all just seem pie in the sky? Um, what are your thoughts? Well, I think, I think um, given the push away from, from fossil fuels, we need to explore all kinds of technologies that can help us reduce greenhouse gases. And um, you know, a lot of these technologies still have to be proven. They have to be proven on a commercial basis. Um, but I think it's important that we make these investments so that we, we have future options uh, because we can't rely on, on the fossil fuels forever. Um, and even company, even, sorry, even countries that have made big pushes to renewables um, have recently figured out or experienced some, some, some negativity around that. I mean, I, I look at the UK this past summer and you know their electricity demands went up and the, the amount of power they're generating from their, their uh, turbines, uh, from their wind turbines, it was down because the wind wasn't blowing as much. That's a, real, that's a, that's a reality of, of uh, wind. Um, if you look at last February, for example, uh, in Texas when they had that winter storm and their um, turbines froze and their natural gas wells froze, at a time when electricity demand went through the roof because of heating. So everybody needs to be mindful as there's no magic bullet, there's no one technology or solution here, but um, 
I think it's very important to keep investing in a, in a, in a range of different uh, uh, low carbon solutions. All right, well, really well said. And John, thank you so much for your time and giving such a cogent, just you know, easy to understand walk through a, a relatively complex topic. And, and more importantly, making sense for people about what's happening right now in the world in terms of this, you know, activity around uranium where you know folks were reading the headlines but not really fully understanding what was driving it all i think you've done a great job of demystifying all of that so thank you very much um look forward to having you back on this program in the future but before we wrap things up here if folks would like to learn more about um, you sprott's work uh the sprott physical uranium trust where should they go yeah the easiest place to go and start your educational journey because i think it's important everything starts with education um, is go to sprott.com forward slash uranium. And on that webpage, all the information about the trust is there. We've got, we've got some great educational content to help you uh, better understand the market dynamics. We have another webpage called Uranium Watch, which provides a bunch of articles that are current. So it's a really good kind of library of content to start the process with. Excellent. Uh, what I'll do is I will put those URLs up on the screen during the editing process, John, so that folks can uh, easily know how to get there. Well, again, thanks so much for, for coming on. We talk a lot about hard assets on the Wealthy Home program here. So I would love to have you back on again in the future, uh, John, to help address some of those other topics as well. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot more to talk about with uranium itself as well. All right, folks watching as we wrap up here, um, if you'd like to help support this channel and see us get continued great guests like John in the program, don't forget to hit that like button and then click the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. John, thank you so much and really hope uh, we see you on the program again soon. Thanks for having me. I'd love to come back and give you an update in the future. Wonderful.